Welcome to the Haunting, Unearthly, and Paranormal Stories podcast. Each week will be a different event, whether paranormal or some other strange and unexplained happening. Maybe even a haunting located near you will be examined and relayed to you. These events and stories are based on events have been given to us by the people who experience these events in their own lives. These stories will take you to the depths of fear and back again. You will learn of places haunted by spectrals and other shadows. You will learn about ghost investigations, the demonic happenings and possible possessions, dream homes taken over by paranormal or supernatural events. Within all these stories, you will question yourself and locations you have been to. Those times you caught movement out of the corner of your eye. Or thought you did. <laughs> you may just learn that it likely was some spirit from another plane of existence trying to get your attention. You may start questioning different locations you currently visit and begin to wonder if those slight noises that you are hearing are truly the building settling or someone from a past life walking down the hallway toward you. These weekly journeys we take together will lead us down deserted roads, into the deep and dark forests and through the doors of buildings we should not enter. Pull up a chair and join me as we take a step into the unknown. Here on the Haunting, Unearthly, and Paranormal Stories podcast. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at hupspodcast at yahoo.com or contact us through our website, http colon forward slash forward slash hupspodcast.com Just remember, believe those that you choose or believe in none. It is your choice. <laughs> it's March 2022, and that means things are starting to turn green again here in the Northern Hemisphere. It also means Fable Beard Company, the official beard oil company of this show, has a great new scent out there. For a limited time, you can get your hands on the Leprechaun. This particular scent is a blend of green clover, fresh rosemary, black pepper, and Irish mist. It is amazing. And they have it in all of the products you've come to love. Beard oil, beard butter, deodorant, beard conditioner, and beard wash. If you haven't tried out Fable by now, then what are you waiting for? My wife loves their conditioner, which she uses on her hair. Heck, we even use their beard wash when we wash our dogs, who, by the way, love the beard conditioner on their beards. Now, they are miniature schnauzers, so even they love this stuff. Check it out at fablebeardcompany.com, and don't forget to use coupon code SEAN15 for 15% off each and every order. All right, let's get back to the show. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Zero. All engine running. From Stettin in the Baltic, 
to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. On Sunday, June 25th, communist forces attacked the Republic of Korea. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. As a free man, I take pride in the word, Ich bin ein Violiner. Three representatives of one foreign power, the Soviet Union, have been expelled for spying. It was C.S. Lewis who, in his unforgettable screw tape letters, wrote, The greatest evil is not done now in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. American History Podcast, bonus episode, Russia and America in the Post-Cold War World. Hello, and welcome to this special bonus episode on Russia and America in the Post-Cold War World. Now, first let me say that I was wrong when I said the Russians would not invade Ukraine. If I remember rightly, both myself and Mason thought this was not going to happen. And we recorded that episode in late January, and wow... Um, were we wrong? I really thought Putin would not attack Ukraine, but attack it he did. And I hope I need not to say this, but um, I know I do need to say it. I condemn any and all war. I've seen the effects it has on those who serve. And so what I'm trying to do here with this show is say that, um, or at least I love to, as I love to say, history did not start yesterday. Now, one of the things that has bothered me has been the apparent lack of understanding on the part of the American foreign policy folks, people who said they were the adults in the room, um, if you remember that from about a year or so ago. Um, Joe Biden, just a few days ago, said this is not about NATO expansion. Now, I beg to differ, and I think this episode is going to destroy that myth once and for all. In essence, this episode will indict not just one president, but basically all of them from Bill Clinton up. Um, with even George H.W. Bush receiving some criticism for the present predicament. Now, if you're listening to this on Patreon, you'll have access to the script, and so you'll see there are a ton of footnotes for this, which I normally don't do with my scripts. Um, but for this one, I think it was important to include footnotes. And I might even put this, make this script available on the website. So go check out www.theamericanhistory.com and... Um, see if I, I if I do in fact put it up there, because there are um, I think it's over sixty footnotes at this point with this episode. Now, with that being said, where to start? Uh, I don't want to go back to say the Middle Ages and talk about the Rus and the foundation of Kiev, which is fascinating, but uh, I think for our purposes would be pointless. I mean, I guess it would further contextualize the issue, but I don't think it's necessary. Instead, I will take us back to the end of the Cold War. You have, I hope, listened to all the episodes from the series 1983. Well, at least um, those of you who are on Patreon. So you've got enough contextual information that I can safely start us out in 1990. I will say that with this episode, I'm, I've tried to use as many primary sources as possible, including speeches. Um, and this episode, due to its importance, is going to be a long one. I think it's going to come in at about an hour. Um, if you're reading along with the transcript, though, again, those on Patreon, you have... Um, access to that for sure, then you will note there are a lot of footnotes. Without further ado, let's go back in time 
And to help us with that, we have Mama Goes Where Papa Goes by Isabel or Isabella Patricola. This song was released in 1923 and comes to us via the Free Music Archive. We'll see you in just a few minutes. Okay, so it's 1990, February 9th to be exact. Your host is all of 19 years old, an undergraduate at the University of Arizona, a Russian and Soviet studies major. In the fall of 1990, I switched my major to history, but in the spring, I was still thinking I'd made the right choice in my studies. A very important meeting was taking place at that time, one that I was not aware of. U.S. Secretary of State James Baker III and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev were meeting. A lot has been made of this particular meeting. Indeed, PolitiFact said Candace Owens was wrong when she tweeted in February of 22 that we agreed not to expand NATO. Now, the argument by PolitiFact is that, quote, no legal agreement prohibits NATO from expanding eastward, end quote. Now, unlike PolitiFact, I'm going to go directly to the archive, the National Security Archive at George Washington University, and see what we find. Baker and Gorbachev discussed a wide range of issues, including the political and economic problems the Soviet Union was facing at the time. They even go into the Soviet Constitution and the possibility of Article 6 being revoked. But that's neither here nor there. Instead of beating around the bush, let's get to the heart of the matter. There is a long lead-up, but Baker asks Gorbachev a question, and here it is. Quote, I want to ask you a question, and you need not answer it right now. Supposing unification takes place, what would you prefer? A united Germany outside of NATO, absolutely independent and without American troops, or a united Germany keeping its connections with NATO, but with the guarantee that NATO's jurisprudence or troops will not spread east of the present boundary, end quote. Gorbachev responds, quote, we will think everything over. We intend to discuss all these questions in depth at the leadership level. It goes without saying that a broadening of the NATO zone is not acceptable, end quote. Baker responds, we agree with that. Now a couple of important points. If I'm advising either one of these gentlemen, I'd have suggested we get this in writing. Get a treaty signed. But sadly, I think, Gorbachev appears to have a high level of trust that he's dealing with honest brokers. 
and I think he was right. Or at least I'd like to think he was right. Baker and H.W. Bush, they were honest brokers. That's not the problem. After the Cold War ended and, and the euphoria of the victory in Iraq, where the United States, quote, kicked the Vietnam syndrome, end quote, to the curb, there were quite a few people in the foreign policy establishment who were not as cautious as Bush and Baker. If George H.W. Bush was president for a second term, I think it was safe to say that no, NATO would not expand one inch eastward. But what happens when they are gone? The second thing is that, yes, technically, the United States did not sign a treaty with the Soviets. This is where the neocon warhawks get out of it. There is some wiggle room there, but in my opinion, that's a dirty move. This is us saying, well, technically, and to me, that's just dirty, at least in my opinion. Uh, Baker was speaking for the president and made a promise. The Soviets, for their part, allowed Germany to unite. They were under the impression that NATO would not expand, period. If they knew how this would turn out, I guarantee you there's no way in hell they'd allow the Federal Republic of Germany, West Germany, and the German Democratic Republic, East Germany, to unite. None. Gorbachev just said that. So just imagine you were Gorbachev. How would you feel in 1999 when NATO expanded? What would you be thinking? I'm sure we would all be thinking we should have gotten this agreement in writing before we allowed East and West Germany to unite. Anyway, let's continue. These were heady times. The summer of 1991 was interesting, as you'll see in a moment. On August 1st, 1991, President George H.W. Bush was in the Soviet Union, specifically in Kiev, in the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Here he gave a speech that was dubbed by some pundits back home, the guys I call neocon imperialists, the Chicken Kiev speech. In this speech, he warned against what he called, quote, suicidal nationalism and argued for the preservation of the Soviet Union. I'll let you listen to President Bush yourself. Here he is. But freedom cannot survive if we let despots flourish or permit seemingly minor restrictions to multiply until they form chains, until they form shackles. Later today, I'll visit the monument of Babi Yar, a somber reminder, a solemn reminder of what happens when people fail to hold back the horrible tide of intolerance and tyranny. And yet freedom is not the same as independence. Americans will not support those who seek independence in order to replace a far-off tyranny with a local despotism. They will not aid those who promote a suicidal nationalism based upon ethnic hatred. Amazingly, it's apparent that, at least in public, George H.W. Bush and his Secretary of State, James Baker III, thought it was best if the Soviet Union did not dissolve. As you can hear, Bush's warning against Ukrainian independence from Moscow, unless it took place under Moscow's terms. He even mentioned, quote, suicidal nationalism based on ethnic hatred, end quote, as dangerous. No one in the West wants to lend credence to it, but there is ethnic hatred for Russians on the part of Ukrainians. And I understand why, at least for some. But just as I can't support the invasion by Russia, even if I think there's a logic behind it, 
I can't support the Ukrainian hatred for Russia and all things Russian. Or at least the hatred on the part of a few Ukrainians. I can't support that. It may not seem surprising, but in the early 1990s, there was an argument about NATO, the place of the United States in the world, all of that. Conservatives like Patrick J. Buchanan and others argued that it was time to bring American forces home and essentially become a normal nation once again. Neocons, on the other hand, argued against this idea. And then straddling the two sides was President H.W. Bush. By August 1991, many thought that his re-election in 1992 was assured. And who could blame them for thinking that? In the aftermath of the victory in the Middle East, his approval ratings were sky high. In early March, they were at 87%, and they were still in the mid-70s by early August. And here's the interesting thing. While Bush was saying to an audience in Kiev that the United States would essentially support the central regime led by Soviet, Soviet leader Gorbachev, there are those who argue the Americans were sowing the seeds of rebellion in the Caucasus region. In 2015, Russian President Vladimir Putin dropped a bombshell revelation. He stated that terror in Chechnya and the Caucasus region in the early 1990s was backed not only by Western intelligence services, but specifically by the CIA. This was, he stated, an attempt to weaken Russia, and he claimed the Russian FSB, their foreign service uh, surveillance agency, had documentation of this. Now, this documentation was not provided, but it does raise some interesting questions. And for years, there have been accusations, even in the West, that the United States was behind this. Just think of the anti-Putin, anti-Russian hysteria of the last six years. Now imagine the Russians had sent Afghan veteran Arab freedom fighters to attack the United States. Basically, when President Bush spoke of a new world order, whatever he might have said publicly, the fact was the Americans were adopting a policy of global dominance. The unipolar moment, as the neocons argued, was our chance to remake the world in our way, and then use our military to keep it that way. Whether it was Charles Crowdermer or Bill Kristol or any one of several neocons, the idea was that the American empire, or hegemony, or whatever term you want, was for their own good. We were here to enforce the liberal rules-based international order. Basically, with Dick Cheney in charge at the uh, Defense Department, it was stated American policy to prevent any rivals, be they Germany, Japan, Russia, or China, or anyone else from ever considering the idea of challenging the United States. Along these lines, there is evidence that some, at least in the government, did not think the Cold War ended, rhetoric be damned. One such person was none other than Paul Wolfowitz, the hawkish neocon is who is often referred to as the architect of Iraq War 2.0. In 1992, a Secret Defense Department memo prepared under his supervision was leaked by the New York Times. This memo, according to the Washington Times, the paper rejected the idea of internationalism and preferred the United States to act unilaterally. To make matters even worse, the memo had a scenario in which it envisions Russians invading Lithuania and called Russia, quote, the gravest potential threat to U.S. vital interests, end quote, and saw that scenario, the Russian invasion of Lithuania, in which the United States would, quote, spearhead a NATO counterattack, end quote. Now, two things about this. First, it is clear that, yes, the American foreign policy establishment really didn't get the memo about the end of the Cold War. 
And two, this document, despite protestations at the time that it wasn't the policy of the Bush administration, was, was essentially followed, especially by George W. Bush's team in the aftermath of 9-11. Remember, Wolfowitz was back in D.C. at that point, and now, in the early 2000s, he was the Deputy Secretary of Defense. Okay, before we move on, one thing about NATO expansion. The Americans were not the only ones who promised it would never happen. The French, the British, and the Germans all said it would not happen. And we know this as it's in the archives, because quite a few of the modern foreign policy experts love to say the promise didn't happen. I want to smash it utterly. I mean, I've already told you, we've already seen James Baker made that promise. But here we go. Here's some more information. Um, here's the German foreign minister speaking on January 31st, 1990. Quote, whatever happens to the Warsaw Pact, there will be no expansion of NATO territory to the east and closer to the borders of the Soviet Union, end quote. Here's another quote. Quote, Francois Mitterrand, John Major, and James Baker, all of them said one and the same thing. NATO will not move to the east by a single inch, and not a single Warsaw Pact country will be admitted to NATO. This was exactly what they said, end quote. The problem, as I said earlier, is the Soviets did not get that guarantee in writing, and believed the West's word was as solid as oak. This brings us to Bill Clinton. Now, I'm not his biggest fan, but I will admit I voted for him in 1992, having voted for Bush in 98, or 88, sorry. His election was seen as sort of a return to domestic affairs in American politics. But that is neither here nor there. Under Bill Clinton, especially in late 1994, the United States really started to look to expand NATO. In June of 94, on the eve of the G7 summit taking place in Italy, President Boris Yeltsin of Russia wrote a letter to the American president. In this letter, he proposed a solution to things like the issues in Bosnia, European security, and even North Korea. Too bad we didn't work with them on that issue, huh? Yeltsin suggested a partnership between the United States and Russia, but one that bypasses NATO. Not surprising, as how could a Russian agree to using NATO? I think of particular interest is when Yeltsin states that the Americans need to trust them and their judgment on issues such as peacekeeping or settling conflicts in the territory of the former Soviet Union. He says, quote, The peacemaking efforts by Russia and other CIS countries are fully consistent with universally recognized rules of international law, the UN Charter, and are being pursued with the consent of parties to the conflict. You must trust us in these matters, just as we trust you. For example, we rely on U.S. assessment of the situation in Haiti, or the French ones as regards Rwanda, end quote. Many of these issues, at least to me, sound very much like what Putin has complained about over the last decade or so. The Russians have concerns, but these concerns go unheard. Russia wants to be a partner, but that partnership is apparently not wanted. By September 1994, on the eve now of a summit between the two leaders to be held in Washington, the Americans are looking to handle Yeltsin. Strobe Talbot, the Undersecretary of State, sent Secretary of State Warren Christopher a memo on how to deal with Yeltsin's questions. Talbot notes that one thing the Russian leader wants to know is whether or not the Americans are, quote, committed to helping Yeltsin and the reformers build a strong, unified, democratic Russia 
that enjoys respect and exercises influence in the world, end quote. Apparently, there were already whispers in Moscow among some that the Americans were only interested in containing and exploiting Russian weakness. Now, this decision was made against the advice of some of the most experienced foreign policy experts the United States has ever produced. George Kennan, who was the deputy head of mission to Moscow from 1944 to 1946, is considered by many to be the father of America's Cold War containment policy. He argued vociferously against the plan by Clinton to expand NATO to the east. He was joined by William Perry, the Secretary of Defense at the time, along with George H.W. Bush's National Security Advisor, General Brent Scowcroft, Paul Nietzsche, and others in saying this was not a good idea. What the Russians most wanted, and I would still say, or I would say still want, is to be treated as an equal. Here was a missed opportunity. Yeltsin was more than happy to cooperate with the Americans on Bosnia, North Korea, and even, wait for it, Ukraine. As a matter of fact, in June 1997, an open letter was published to the president. This letter argued that the idea of expanding NATO was, quote, a policy error of historic proportions. We believe that NATO expansion will decrease Allied security and unsettle European stability for the following reasons. In Russia, NATO expansion will strengthen the non-democratic opposition, bring the Russians to question the entire post-Cold War settlement, and galvanize resistance in the Duma to the START II and III treaties, end quote. Sounds like the old gray beards, as Scott Horton calls them, were onto something. It was also pundits on the right, old school conservatives, sometimes referred to as paleoconservatives, like Pat Buchanan, who questioned the wisdom of Bill Clinton's move to expand NATO. Writing in 1999, Buchanan noted that while Russia might be, quote, the sick man of Europe, end quote, at the moment, it was sure to recover. And when it did, it could very well claim its own Monroe Doctrine. Should that come, he said, the United States would face one hellish dilemma, a confrontation with a nuclear-armed power bent on recapturing its former sphere of influence. By June 1999, relations had indeed taken a turn for the worse. From February of 1998 to June 11th of 1999, a war took place in Kosovo, this was part of the dissolution of Yugoslavia at the end of the Cold War, and it's too complicated to get into the details here. Suffice it to say that on one side you had Serbia and Montenegro fighting against a group known as the KLA, or the Kosovo Liberation Army. For what it's worth, NATO took the side of the KLA against the Serbians who are, as you probably know, a Slavic people. By this point, the Russians were getting tired of the United States and her allies using NATO to pick winners against the Serbs. This support for the KLA is even more shocking when you understand that it had links to Al-Qaeda and prior to the war in Kosovo had been on a list kept by the U.S. State Department of terrorist organizations in the world. I'm going to throw this in here real quick, and it's not in the script, but this is in the Balkans. About a century ago, a huge war started in the Balkans. That war was World War I. Anyways, the bombing campaign NATO engaged in was controversial, as they bypassed the UN Security Council, caused numerous refugees and deaths, and in the end, made the Russians react in the way 
Kennan, and others had predicted. As it drew to a close, the Russians, again angry at being ignored, expected they were going to be given a peacekeeping role independent of NATO in Kosovo. They were not, and, as you can imagine, not happy with that. Essentially, what the United States was doing was setting a precedent, one that the Russians have invoked in February of 2022, much to the chagrin of the U.S. government, and one which they act as if they themselves have never used. This led in the early morning hours of June 11, 1999, to a column of about 30 Russian vehicles and 250 Russian troops to enter Serbia from Bosnia, where they were part of the international peacekeeping forces there. One thing led to another, and at one point, General Wesley Clark, the American NATO Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, ordered British and French paratroopers to seize the airport at Pristina, where the Russians were headed. In the end, Clark was wrong, and ended up being removed from his post by U.S. Chief of Staff, Army General Hugh Shelton. The attitude, however, amongst many Americans at this time was, the Russians need to know their place. They lost the Cold War. We won it. And I have to include myself in that group of people. And what I did not understand at that time, but I do now, was the danger. In essence, the Cold War had been revived, not in Moscow, but in Washington. The triumphalist narrative that the Americans won and the Russians lost the Cold War was not only wrong, but it was dangerous. As Russian historian, um, actually he's an American historian, but he's a specialist in Russian, uh, Russian history, but um, as uh, Stephen F. Cohen notes in his book, Soviet Fates and Lost Alternatives from Stalinism to the New Cold War, Clinton in this period made two errors, which are still haunting us today. First, quote, he treated post-communist Russia not as a strategic partner, but as a defeated nation, analogous to Germany and Japan after World War II, end quote. Both were expected to replicate America's domestic norms and bow to the United States in the international arena and the same was expected of Russia. The second, and most important of these two policy errors, was to break the promise to the Soviets on NATO expansion. This led to other acts of broken strategic promises, which, if you just look at a map, made it appear to the, uh, that the West and NATO were encircling Russia. This caused in Russia an ever-growing belief that it had been constantly deceived, as Putin charged, by the United States. However, according to Clinton, his move would guarantee a united Europe. 25 years later, I wonder if you think Clinton was correct. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee in 1997 held hearings on this issue. One of the men who spoke that day was Jack Matlock, Ronald Reagan's ambassador to Moscow in his second term. Here's what Matlock said when it came to NATO expansion. Quote, I think that to bring in new members at this time under these conditions, is a misguided policy, and if it should be approved by the Senate, that it could go down in history as a profound strategic blunder, end quote. And he goes on to mention that expansion will, instead of improving security, would instead lead to a series of events that could lead to the most profound security threat since the Soviet Union. Further, the ambassador goes on to note that, by expanding NATO and not including Russia in it, we send a message. The message being conveyed to the Russians is that we still view them as, at least, a potential enemy. Why would we have wanted to send that message to them? 
there are two problems with Bill um, and his people when it came to dealing with the Russians. And I think it's a problem that permeates American thinking on foreign policy. First, they saw the world through an American lens and couldn't see why the Russians would possibly think this is a bad thing. In their minds, the Russians are just paranoid. The second problem is related to the first is the fact that most Americans, and certainly those in the foreign policy establishment, see us as the good guys. I hate to say it, but that's a very childish way of seeing the world. As I've probably said a million times, this isn't Star Wars. If anything, it's Game of Thrones. And there are no good guys, and there are no bad guys. There are, however, just shades of gray. All right, so let's move on. It's 1998. By this point, it's apparent NATO is going to expand. The euphoria over the victory, if you want to call it a victory, has not died down. In fact, the arrogance that came out of that has instead increased. Here's the Secretary of State at that time, Madeleine Albright. She's on the Today Show, and she's talking about Iraq. But I assure you, the Russians are hearing this, as are the Chinese. Quote, Let me say that we are doing everything possible so that American men and women in uniform don't have to go out there again. It's the threat of the use of force and our lineup there that is going to put force behind the diplomacy. But if we have to use force, it's because we are America. We are the indispensable nation. We stand tall and we see further than other countries into the future. And we see the danger here to all of us, end quote. Now, there's a lot to break down here. First, she mentions putting force behind diplomacy. I wonder if the Russians heard that. Then she says this, and I want to make sure that you focused on it because I went through that quote pretty quick, but here it is. But if we, my emphasis, have to use force, it's because we are America. We are the indispensable nation. We stand tall and we see further than other countries into the future. And we see the danger here to all of us, end quote. Wow, the arrogance here. And this idea is not just hers. This is the neocon attitude. And that's why I say that neocons are both on the left and the right. They're in both the Republican and Democrat Party. America is the indispensable nation. It sees further than anyone. We stand tall because remember, we are the city on a hill. Sound familiar? If not, go check out episode four of season two on the American empire. Also in 1998, we had an interview with uh, George Kennan. On May 8th, the New York Times published an interview that Thomas Friedman did with Kennan. In it, the venerable statesman said, quote, I think it, NATO expansion, is the beginning of a new Cold War. I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely, and it will affect their policies. I think it's a tragic mistake. There was no reason for this whatsoever. No one was threatening anybody else, end quote. He went on to state that essentially the United States was signing up to protect a whole set of countries whom it had neither the resources nor the intention to protect. The odd thing about the debates at the time were statements about how Russia as a country is dying to attack Western Europe. Nothing could have been further from the truth. The Russian military was a shell of what it had been under the Soviet Union. The economy was a disaster, and they were having difficulty with a Chechen insurgency. The last thing the Russians wanted was a war with the rest of Europe. But there's more in this quote. On the idea that Russia was dying to attack the West, quote, don't people understand our differences in the Cold War with the Soviet communist regime 
we are turning our backs on the very people who mounted the greatest bloodless revolution in history to remove that Soviet regime, end quote. And finally, he says, quote, it shows so little understanding of Russian history and Soviet history. Of course, there's going to be a bad reaction from Russia. And then the NATO expanders will say that we always told you this is how the Russians are. But this is just wrong, end quote. Kennan was more than right. He was almost prophetic. As we've seen over the last 15 years or so, the Russians have become more belligerent and the American foreign policy establishment has as well. There seems to be an inability on the part of some Americans, and by that I mean members of the political class and foreign policy establishment, to see Russia as a potential partner. Don't take my word for it, though. Here's William Perry, Bill Clinton's Secretary of Defense, from 1994 to 1997, speaking to The Guardian on March 9, 2016. Quote, Basically, the people I was arguing with when I tried to put the Russian point the response that I got was really, who cares what they think? They're a third-rate power, end quote. That attitude was prevalent in the late 1990s. Who cares what the Russians think? They lost and they should know their place. Not exactly the sort of attitude to engender peace and cooperation. The amazing thing is the Hawks were right. Folks like Pat Buchanan, a dyed-in-the-wool cold warrior, a member of the administrations of both Presidents Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, couldn't understand the thinking. He said, Stalin's dead. The Soviet Empire's gone. And there's no reason for NATO to exist. The Russians aren't the enemy. I think it's obvious a large section of the national policy establishment didn't get the memo. There's more to all of this, at least from the Russian point of view. And it's important that we understand their point of view. Why? Because we don't want to keep making the same mistakes over again. Here's the aforementioned historian Stephen Cohen. Quote, At fault, as I have argued repeatedly, is the basic premise that has guided American policy since 1991, that the United States can and should intervene deeply in Russia's internal affairs to transform that nation into an American-style system at home and a compliant junior partner abroad. This attitude can be seen... I'm sorry, that was the end of the quote. Um, this attitude can be seen in the almost crusader-like zeal of people like the Harvard boys who suggested economic shock therapy for the Russian economy after the ending of the Soviet Union and democracy proselytizers like Michael McFaul, the former ambassador to Russia during Obama's second term. Um, by the way, Michael McFaul was made persona non grata and kicked out of Russia, uh, I think in 2014. And have no doubt, the Americans interfered in this process, going so far as to aid Yeltsin's re-election campaign in 1996. Just Google it. You can see the Time Magazine covers triumphantly talking about how the Yanks came to the rescue. So let's look at this idea of shock therapy. The Harvard boys helped destroy what was left of the Russian economy in the early 1990s. First, who are they? They are Larry Summers, David Lipton, Jeff Sachs, and Robert Rubin. They were the team that told the Russian government to abolish all subsidies and price controls. This for a country that had price controls for decades. You can probably imagine the results. The social and economic disintegration experienced by Russia in the 1990s was so massive that male life expectancy dropped to less than 60 years, or about what it had been at the end of the 19th century. From 1992 to 1998, 
Soviet-era programs that were essential to the well-being of millions of ordinary people were ended overnight. Industries from healthcare to food processing were raised to the ground in the name of free market and, by the early 2000s, had yet to be replaced. Starting in 1991, Russia experienced the worst peacetime industrial depression of the 20th century. The degradation of their agricultural and livestock industries was, by some metrics, worse than Stalin's collectivization program of the 1930s. The 1990s were a time of economic deprivation, to put it mildly. Yet to listen to American academics, you'd think it was the exact opposite. The word depression often does not appear in academic or even media accounts of the time period. Lethal, whom I've already mentioned, acts as if the economy is nothing to mention in his book on his dealings with Russia and the Russians during this time period. He laments the lost chance at making Russia into America 2.0, but never mentions his own complicity in this failure, nor does he ever question whether it was his and our job to do anything to Russia in the aftermath of the Cold War. Such self-criticism is, of course, beyond the capacity of the American politician. But one would think someone like him, who is, after all, a professor at Stanford, would at least be capable of some introspection. As it happens, the American decision-makers did not listen to Russians and their worries, whether it was about the economy or about security. NATO expanded to include Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. Despite what I've uh, seen recently, that the Russians didn't complain, this is a fabrication or an outright lie. The Russians did object, but remember the Clinton people, for the most part, saw them as a third-rate power, and so went ahead anyway. As we can see, especially with the advantage of hindsight, soaring rhetoric aside, what Bill Clinton achieved was not the reunification of Europe at peace with itself. Instead, what was achieved was a redivided Europe at war with itself once again. And before we move on to George W. Bush, I want to mention a couple of other things. In 1998, as the Senate voted in favor of NATO expansion, one member of the Senate said, quote, This, in fact, is the beginning of another 50 years of peace, end quote. Who is that senator? Someone who brags about his time on the Foreign Relations Committee. None other than President Joe Biden. Okay, that was only one thing. But anyways. Now let's talk about the presidency of George W. Bush. Something most Americans don't know, or did know and have forgotten, is the fact that Vladimir Putin was the first foreign leader to call on the American leader after 9-11 and offer his help. It's true, you can look it up. I've got the footnotes. Putin, I'm sorry, Putin, the previous year, had said that Russia could join NATO. And at that point, 2001, was more than willing to help the United States in its fight against Al-Qaeda. Surprisingly, the Americans did not understand that what Putin was offering was his help, but he wanted something in return. And that was for the United States to keep out of what Russia saw as its backyard. This is only to be expected. No one offers something for nothing. To make what was about to happen worse, Putin did all of this while facing criticism, which you've probably never heard of, from his right. Not only from politicians, but from military leaders. Then came December 2001. After the Russians allowed the United States to use air bases in the former Soviet republics of Central Asia, as well as ordering Russian generals to brief their American counterparts on their own occupation of, of Afghanistan, what did the United States do? President Bush announced the United States was withdrawing unilaterally 
from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. The excuse was to build a missile defense system in Eastern Europe to protect, as they said, against Iranian missile attacks. One might ask, what Iranian missiles? The Iranians do not possess ballistic missile technology capable of hitting the United States. And Putin warned this move would undermine arms control as well as nuclear non-proliferation efforts. Have you ever heard the news about North Korea over the last 15 years or so? The camaraderie between Bush II and Putin was destroyed by an ill-conceived move to do two things. Put weapons into Eastern Europe to defend against an Iranian threat that did not exist, as well as the decision in November of 2002 to bring in seven new nations to NATO, including the former Soviet republics of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. At least one of Bush's advisors, Thomas E. Graham, Senior Director for Russia on the National Security Council, said the Americans should have pressed instead for a new post-Soviet European-wide security structure that would replace NATO and include Russia. He notes what many of us know, or long expected before we had confirmation. Vice President Dick Cheney, Senator John McCain, many other hawks in both parties, including Joe Biden, were suspicious of Russia and eager to expand NATO. Quote, they argued that Moscow should not be given veto power over which nations could join the alliance, and that no American president should rebuff demands from Eastern European nations to escape Russian dominance. End quote. Well, as I argued on Twitter a few weeks back, Russia has just shown that they will veto any attempt by NATO preemptively through invasion. Remember, the United States, in the aftermath of September 11th, gave itself the right to preemptively invade a country if the United States believed that country was a threat. Quote, We cannot defend America and our friends by hoping for the best. We cannot put our faith in the word of tyrants, who solemnly sign non-proliferation treaties and then systematically break them. If we wait for the threats to fully materialize, we will have waited too long. End quote. It sounds like W. Bush and his team were following the game plan laid out in that secret DOD memo from 1992. They still believe Russia is an existential threat to the United States. Now, one of the most overlooked aspects of American foreign policy is our penchant to overthrow foreign governments that we don't like. This is not some new phenomenon either. It's been going on since the early days of the Cold War. Actually, we have to go back further. In the last century, we've been involved in regime change in the following countries, some successful and some not. Nicaragua, Mexico, Haiti, Dominican Republic, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Russia, South Korea, China, Greece, Albania, Syria, Burma and China again, Egypt, Iran, Guatemala, Syria again, Indonesia, South Vietnam, Cuba, the Congo, Laos, Dominican Republic again, Brazil, Iraq, Indonesia, Cambodia, Chile, Bolivia, Ethiopia, Angola, East Timor, Argentina, Afghanistan, Chad, Nicaragua again, Grenada, Panama, Iraq again, Haiti again, Zaire, Syria again, Libya, and I'm sure there are more. Of particular interest to Putin was and is the color-coded revolutions which have been fomented by the United States and the CIA. Some might balk at the idea of the United States and the CIA interfering in domestic politics of a sovereign nation. 
but it happens all the time. Here's The Guardian in November 2004 discussing the color-coded revolutions. Quote, the campaign is an American creation, a sophisticated and brilliantly conceived exercise in Western branding and mass marketing that, in four countries in four years, has been used to try to salvage rigged elections and topple unsavory regimes, end quote. So the complaints of at least half of the American electorate starting in 2016 about Russia interfering in our elections? I'd ask those people what did they expect. And, as the article points out, Ukraine wasn't the first. We had used these tactics in Serbia, Georgia, and we tried but failed in Belarus. Now, if someone doesn't think these revolutions have anything to do with what's happened recently, they're kidding themselves. The American government spreading what it refers to as democracy is, in the view of others, spreading chaos, which the Americans then benefit from. These revolutions are, in fact, coup d'etats. And when one looks at how many the United States has cultivated in Russia's near abroad, you could be forgiven for thinking perhaps they have a reason to be upset. Starting with the Rose Revolution in Georgia in 2003, of course the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004, the Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan, the Denim Revolution in Belarus in 2006. The revolution in Belarus was not successful, and even though there, has been fur- there have been further attempts, the president of Belarus has said there will be no more. Putin himself, as recently as last month, has said he will stop these from occurring. And here again is William Perry, talking in 2016 about this, which he believes is a major reason the relationship between the United States and Russia has been poisoned. Quote, After he came to office, Putin came to believe that the United States had an active and robust program to overthrow his regime. From that point on, a switch went on in Putin's mind that said, I'm no longer going to work with the West. I don't know the facts behind Putin's belief that we had a program to foment revolution in Russia, but what counts is he believed it, end quote. In this interview with The Guardian, Perry went on to say that he believed the current tensions between the West and Russia had the potential to become serious. In 2008, William Burns, the current director of the CIA, was ambassador to Russia. He sent a cable home to the boss, George W. Bush, in which he talked about NATO expansion and how the Russians felt about it. This came to us thanks to Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. And as Scott Horton notes, Assange currently rots away in the darkest dungeons of the American empire, so we could know this. So here we go. Quote, Following a muted first reaction to Ukraine's intent to seek a NATO membership action plan, or MAP, at the Bucharest summit, Foreign Minister Lavrov and other senior officials have reiterated strong opposition, stressing that Russia would view further eastward expansion as a potential military threat. NATO enlargement, particularly to Ukraine, remains an emotional and neurologic issue for Russia. But strategic policy considerations also underlie strong opposition to NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia. In Ukraine, these include fears that the issue could potentially split the country in two, leading to violence or even, some claim, civil war, which would force Russia to decide whether to intervene, end quote. Now Lavrov said more. He admits that while the United States and Europe do have legitimate interests in their area, the Russians do as well. He even admitted that, yes, Russia trying to maintain its sphere of influence in the area was anachronistic. Amazingly, Americans seem unable to reciprocate. 
They never seem to admit that Russia has any legitimate concerns. For those wondering, here's the exact quote. Quote, While Russia might believe statements from the West that NATO was not directed against Russia, when one looked at recent military activities in NATO countries, establishment of U.S. forward operating locations, etc., they have to be evaluated by not by stated intentions, but by potential. Lavrov stressed that maintaining Russia's sphere of influence in the neighborhood was anachronistic and acknowledged that the U.S. and Europe had legitimate interests in the region. But, he argued, while countries are free to make their own decisions about their security and which political military structures to join, they needed to keep in mind the impacts on their neighbors, end quote. Lavrov, and this is important, believed that the logic behind the expansion of NATO was not based on security, but a relic of Cold War thinking. Quote, he disputes arguments that NATO was an appropriate mechanism for helping to strengthen democratic governments. He said that Russia understood NATO was in search of a new mission and that Russia was not impressed with new members' tendency to think that because they were protected by NATO, i.e. the United States, they could do whatever they wanted. He specifically pointed out new members' attempts to rewrite history and glorify fascists, end quote. Burns, also in 2008, told Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elite, not just Putin. In more than two and a half years of conversations with key Russian playmakers, from knuckle-draggers in the dark recesses of the Kremlin to Putin's sharpest liberal critics, I have yet to find anyone who views Ukraine and NATO as anything other than a direct challenge to Russian interests. But, according to Joe Biden and the rest of the opposition or opinion molders in this country, Russia is just a war-mad country intent on attacking its neighbors. Burns, again Joe Biden's current director of CIA, was ignored. On the 1st of April 2008, George W. Bush announced in Kiev that he was a strong supporter of NATO membership for both Georgia and Ukraine. Now, I think it would behoove us to quickly look at NATO. First, what is NATO? And secondly, why are the Russians afraid of it? First, let's make it clear. NATO is not some debate society. It's not like an invitation to a cocktail party. It's a military alliance formed in the early years of the Cold War to oppose the Soviet Union. Further, it's a war guarantee. This relic of the Cold War was not designed to secure America. America was already secure thanks to two oceans and the fact that Russians did not have a blue water navy. Instead, it was a tripwire, the purpose of which was to guarantee that, if Russia moved west, American troops would be involved, and, after the Soviets acquired a nuclear bomb, so would nukes. However, the Soviet Union ceased to exist on 25 December 1991. There was no longer any such thing as a Soviet threat. And thus, it was time for NATO to also disband, just as the Warsaw Pact disbanded. But because it didn't, it then went on a search for a new mission, something which was brought up in the early 1990s. In an opinion piece published in the New York Times on the 1st of June, 1991, the real problem, at least for Americans, is that the creation of a new security organization that also encompasses Eastern Europe would perhaps, quote, displace NATO and push America to the periphery, end quote. That's the problem with all of this. If NATO exists, the United States is in charge. Once the world became a unipolar world, the last thing those in charge wanted was to return to a reality 
where that power was shared. Then there was the issue of missile defense, which President W. Bush mentioned when it was discussed that more Eastern European countries would be added. George W. Bush was certainly not his father when it came to foreign policy, and that was a bad thing. Not only did he continue the expansion of NATO that had started under his predecessor, despite claims of wanting a more humble foreign policy when he debated Al Gore, he removed the United States from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty negotiated with Richard Nix- by Richard Nixon. He then moved to place missile defenses in Poland to guard against Iranian weapons. But does this make any sense? Iran has no ballistic missile technology, not in the types that can hit the United States. And today, the Mark 41 launchers that the United States placed in Poland are a major concern for Russians. Why? Because they can be loaded with Tomahawk cruise missiles, which, if you didn't know, can be nuclear-armed. But of course, Russia has nothing to worry about. It isn't as if the Americans have instigated a revolution in, oh, say, Ukraine, or invaded a country like Iraq based on bad intelligence. Now, before we move on, let me just ask, how would you react if you were Putin? As many scholars have noted, American politicians have a hard time trying to see the world through the eyes of the other side. It's almost like they are a five-year-old child who doesn't understand that their actions have consequences. If, for example, the Russians had won the Cold War, then kicked us when we were down, delivered economic shock therapy, extended the Warsaw Pact against promises to do otherwise, fomented revolutions in our backyard, and then placed weapons that could be used to attack us on our doorstep, all the while calling our leaders killers and whatnot, how would we react? Now make no mistake, as some might, I'm not excusing an invasion of another country. Some out there can't get it through their head that I'm an anarcho-capitalist. I vehemently, I am vehemently against war. Even though a few reviewers seem to think that I'm a Trump supporter and an equal number seem to think I'm a bleeding heart liberal Democrat, I despise all politicians. In my mind, they're all war criminals who should be prosecuted for the awful wars they've been waging over my lifetime. However, if you want to understand why someone is doing something, then you need to follow the history. Will I condemn everything Vladimir Putin has done and will do in Ukraine? I want to understand why, and I don't believe the narrative given to me by the media. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's continue. The Obama years. Now, if you thought the United States was done meddling in the affairs of other nations when President Barack Obama was elected, you thought wrong. It is, of course, well known that Obama used far more drone attacks than Bush did, but he also assisted assisted in the destruction of Libya, despite that country's leader, Muammar Gaddafi, having given up his WMD program willingly. Obama also had a secret kill list, something which most Americans are unaware of. You can just Google that. It was a New York Times article in May 2012. But pertinent to our account is the fact that, under Obama, the United States continued to expand NATO, this time adding the Balkan states, Albania and Croatia. So much for a different foreign policy than his predecessor. Then, after placing so much emphasis on a reset, um, Obama and Hillary Clinton made Putin's hand-picked predecessor, Dmitry Medvedev, look like a fool when they maneuvered him into supporting, at least giving somewhat tacit support, the 2011 revolution resolution against Libya, which ended up turning that country into a failed state. It is obvious that after agreeing to not veto the resolution in the Security Council, which the Americans wanted, the Russians this time were done being a party 
to the American effort to remake the world. I should mention the Russians were particularly unhappy with the Western powers targeting a country that had once been an ally. Then, in May 2011, it was apparent the next country in line for targeting was Syria. Russia made it clear they would not support this. To quote the Russian president at the time, Medvedev, quote, I will not support such a revolution, even if my friends and allies ask me, end quote. He went on to note that in Libya, the NATO alliance had gone further than its mandate stated, and thus he would not support such action in Syria, another long-time Russian ally. The shocking part about our involvement in Libya is that we supported al-Qaeda veterans of the wars in the Middle East who had returned home and were leading the insurgency against the Libyan government. And yes, I've got the footnote for that. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the fact that the Americans had played Medvedev had consequences. It led to Putin returning to the presidency of Russia earlier than planned. Perhaps he would have returned anyway at some point. We will never truly know. But we do know that the Obama administration gave money to NGOs to support the process. Process of democracy. My question is, why are Americans, be it the U.S. government or private citizens, giving money to affect elections in Russia, or any other country for that matter? Then we have American involvement in Russia's near abroad or their backyard, Ukraine. The United States armed Ukrainian forces against Russian-backed separatists. Who exactly were we arming? According to Putin, these people were Ukrainian nationalists, fascists, and neo-Nazis. Both Glenn Greenwald in The Intercept and The Guardian newspaper have confirmed that at least some of the Ukrainian nationalists are, in fact, neo-Nazis. In 2014, there was another revolution in Ukraine. When the results of the elections there were, went pro-Russia, there were demonstrations, etc., and the results were overturned. But personally, I think all of these guys are bad. But again, how would the U.S. act if, say, a government came to power in Mexico that was friendly to China and make noise about, made noise about joining a military alliance with the Chinese? I think we know what would happen. By now, your head is probably spinning. In one area, we fight Al-Qaeda, and then in another, we support it. This is, if you've listened to the Patreon-only series Quagmire, typical of American foreign policy. We back one group, and we back another group, often two different sides of the same conflict, without any thought of how this might affect us in the future. The CIA has a term for the unintended consequences that are a result of policies kept secret from the American public. That term is blowback. As Chalmers Johnson said, quote, what the daily press reports as the malign acts of terrorists or drug lords or rogue states often turn out to be blowback from earlier American operations. The fact that Russia has lashed out is not surprising if one understands this basic idea and remembers that history did not start February 22nd, 2022. Okay, we could go on further, but I feel like we're getting too close to moving out of history and into current events. As it is, I often think history classes should get no closer than 20 years to the present. But for this, I felt it was necessary to get closer than that. And I hope that, by now, you've got a better understanding of how we got to the point where we are now when it comes to relationship with Russia. Sadly, I think the relationship is now beyond repair, at least for the time being. There is no Ronald Reagan in the White House, someone willing to make a deal with the Russians. There's no Richard Nixon, a master of realpolitik, who could go to China and bring that nation in from the cold 
at the height of the Cold War. Instead, President Joe Biden supported each and every round of NATO expansion. His foreign policy team seems to consist of the same neocon, neoliberal folks who helped get us here in the first place. Okay, well, that is all for this massive episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope at least it gives you, um, like I said, a little bit of the history behind all this. Um, If you did, please consider supporting the show. If you really liked it, please go to Patreon. Join our Patreon where you get stuff like this and um, some bonus series. Um, You can also go to iTunes and give us a five-star review. It helps the algorithm, and I'm sure I'm going to need it after this. I'll probably get a bunch of negative reviews calling me both a Trump supporter and a bleeding heart liberal Democrat and everything in between. But um, thank you for listening, and I'll see you all next time.